My name is Juanita, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and I am a member of the Shively Al-Anon group. Hi, everybody. And I'm shaking. Uh, this was the only lie they ever told me when I first came to Al-Anon. They said, talking gets easier, and it never has. This has taken my personal inventory to public level, and I'm never comfortable doing it. Uh, I'm a sometimes grateful member of that group. Um, uh, I wish I could say I was always grateful, but sometimes, uh, like Mike and uh, Marilyn said, you get volunteered one time too many, and you, sometimes you lose a little gratitude. Uh, but I'd, I do belong to a worldwide fellowship of groups that call themselves Al-Anons. Uh, I'm eligible for Al-Anon because my husband is an alcoholic. Uh, I'm a member of Al-Anon because I attend meetings uh, regularly. I'm a member of a home group. I, uh, I work in that home group, and I have served at every level in service except the delegate of Kentucky. And uh, I was a little busy raising nine children, so that level of service eluded me. <laughs> uh, when I say that um, Bob and I are the parents of nine children, these are nine Alateens because, you see, when I came to Al-Anon, uh, was in 1960, February of 1960, and uh, when my husband got sober in AA was it November the 9th, 1962, and our daughter, who was nine and a half, had been in Alateen for a year at the time. So our children grew up in Alateen, and uh, they... Um, they literally grew up in the program because uh, shortly after the, the older two were in Alateen, uh, they started an Alatot program, and that was for six years up to 12. And uh, we even have an Aladog and an Alacat. <laughs> and um, I'm beginning to feel a little bit better, so maybe I'll get into my talk. Uh, you know, the wonderful part about this is there's a couple of rows of people who have heard me, and they came anyway. They knew I was going to talk, and they came anyway. That's true friendship. And, you know, the nice part about this is when we leave here Sunday, we'll go home, and we'll tell our friends that we cried all weekend and had a wonderful time. <laughs> and they think we really are crazy. Marilyn, we do qualify for that Section 8. and that what Klinger tried to get in, out of the Army? <laughs> for being crazy. Uh, uh, I tell you that uh, I, I am a member of Al-Anon because I work at it. I go to meetings and I work real hard. And, and my home group is so important to me. I just I happen to think that the Shively group is the best darned Al-Anon group in the whole world. And I don't say that to cause you to say, well, no, it isn't. My group is. I say that because the people in my home group know the worst of me, and they love me anyway. And you can't buy that. That's, that's a benefit and a grace and, a, and a, a, something that's been given to me that I, I didn't even earn. It was just given to me. Um, my husband and I uh, knew each other from childhood. We went to grade school and high school together. Uh, I didn't like him in high school because he drank. Uh, we... Uh, uh, dated off and on, and uh, if he drank on a date, then I wouldn't date him again for a little while. But we lived in a small community outside of Louisville, and 
uh, it was a small German community, and uh, uh, the German people like to have uh, parties. They like to have first communion parties. They like to have wedding receptions. They like to have uh, confirmation parties. And the first thing they always do is ice up the beer. And uh, so I became a part of this community and a part of this life, and it was the natural thing to do. You know, everybody drank. And uh, I didn't like the way he drank because I told him that uh, when he opened up a bottle of beer, his personality changed. And he would look me straight in the eye and he'd say, no, when I open up a bottle of beer, your personality changes. And, you know, we know today that's true, that the beer did change both of us because he, he is an alcoholic because he says so, and I got sick. Uh, you know, this man could drink a beer and my tongue got sick. Uh, he could get drunk and I had his hangovers. Uh, I really believe that's why he was able to drink as long as he was because he, he never really had to suffer those hangovers. I had them for him. I was the one that could, my head would be stopped up, my nose would be all red, and my eyes swollen shut, and I had this pounding headache for the next, you know, the whole next day. Because, you see, while he was drinking, I was, re I was reasoning and rationalizing with this man. And I thought this was perfect time. You know, when they're drunk, you've got their attention. And uh, I would talk to this man, and I would tell him what he was doing wrong, and I, would, and I thought this was good, sound reasoning. He called it nagging. But uh, you know, we had a lot of differences of opinion. Uh, you see, when we married, we married with the idea that we were going to live, we were going to have this thing called gracious living. You know, we were going to have our candlelight and tablecloths and uh, the crystal and the china, and we were going to have a drink before dinner, and uh, we were going to live graciously. And um, it was agreed upon before we ever became engaged that uh, if, we had a fa if we married, we would have a large family because I was an only child, and uh, I wanted a large family, a big one. And he said, how big is big? And I said, six. And he said, six. And I said, yes. And I said, I pray for six. And I know now God looked down and saw that number upside down because he sent us nine. <laughs> but we did. Now, getting married wasn't real easy because, you see, we broke up a lot in high school and dating. I mean, he kept getting drunk and I kept getting mad and we broke up. And when we did finally, the night that he offered me the engagement ring, I looked him straight in the eye and I said, you've got to be kidding. I would never marry a man who drinks. You have a problem. And he looked at me, and he was so hurt. And he said, Honey, do you think after we're married and I have responsibilities that I'll drink like that? <laughs> and you know, I apologized to him. And I asked him for the ring. So, you see, I was already sick. Uh, I was also an only child and an only grandchild that lived in the city uh, there in Louisville with my grandmother. And my grandmother was a four foot, ten inch, 190 pounds of Irish redhead. And she had a fearsome temper. And uh, when I was little, uh, this wasn't, this isn't my natural color. I didn't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> 
I was a little redhead, just like my grandmother, and when I had a temper fit, people would pat me on the head and say, oh, isn't she cute? She's just like her grandmother. And I thought a temper was something to be proud of. And you know, when you've got a really bad temper, I mean, you can accomplish a lot of things. People give way just to, you know, calm you down. And uh, I did, you know, I did a lot of good things with that temper. I mean, I would get so mad that I would do things that other people were afraid to even try. Uh, so it wasn't all bad. But by the time we were married, that temper was well honed, I mean, to a fine point. And um, you see, I, I never knew my father. Uh, and I had a stepfather that I was terrified of. I, I mean, I lived in fear of him. And so I never had a normal relationship with any man. And then I, I fall in love with this one, and I let him get close to me, and he hurts me. And I wasn't going to take that lightly. You see, I was going to control him, and I was going to fix him, and I was going to make him be what I thought he ought to be. And that's what led me down the primrose path. Because, you see, I spent 11 years trying to fix him. Uh, and I just knew that his drinking had to be my fault because, you know, it was bad before we married, but it, was, it grew much worse as the years went by. Uh, we had four little girls straight in a row. And uh, about the time the fourth one, was a little girl, was born, well, then's when I settled in on what the reason for his drinking was. He drank because he needed a son. If he had a son, he'd sober up. And I asked him, and he agreed. And... Uh, <laughs> So we had a little boy. I told God it had to be a little boy. Uh, and the reason that I can tell you that I told God this was that I was very religious. Now, I never had a spiritual bone in my body, but oh, was I religious. I was so religious I went away to be a nun when I was 14 uh, because I wanted to be perfect. And uh, but they, I, had, I entered the wrong order because uh, I got in that convent and um, they didn't want me to talk. They wanted me to be quiet all day long. The only time I could say anything was at nighttime at the recreation half hour. And uh, I lasted three months. And when my mother called one night at that recreation hour, and I heard the sound of her voice, I burst into tears and said, I want to come home. And I hadn't even really thought about it. But I couldn't stand that not talking and scrubbing windowsills. So uh, I came home, and I, I think that my avocation or vocation was to be the mother of these nine children because they have brought us a great deal of joy. Um, but anyway, uh, getting back to this being religious and telling God, I told God that this baby had to be a boy because that's the only way I was going to get him sober. And the day Robbie was born was July 14, 1958, and uh, I just knew that when this boy was handed to me in that delivery room, and uh, I, I just knew Bob was going to come into the hospital room, take me in his arms and say, Honey, you've given me a son. I'll never have to drink again. Everything's going to be wonderful in our lives. And I waited three days for him to come. He was out celebrating the birth of a son and forgot we were up there. But, and I laid there in that hospital room hating that man with every ounce of strength I had in my body. I mean, I, I thought of divorce, I thought of murder, I thought of everything. Uh, you know, I never thought of suicide. You know, homicide every day. Suicide never. I never wanted to hurt me, but boy, I wanted to kill him. 
And uh, if you get along this story, you'll find out how I almost did. Uh, he, uh, but he came through the door that, that day in the hospital, and he had his arms just loaded down with baseballs and footballs and uh, little uh, guns and all kinds of things. And I just melted because he was going to be a father to this little boy. And I thought, well, you know, it's, it's, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Um, so we went home, and he went back to drinking. But I could handle it. I could accept the drinking because this was just a baby. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't play ball or take this baby fishing or hunting. And I was willing to wait through the, these drinking spells until this baby grew up big enough for him to take hunting and fishing. Uh, the next year, we had another boy. And I thought, boy, if one can't, two surely can, because he'll have one on either hand. He won't be able to hold a beer bottle. And, uh, but it was on this uh, first boy's second or third birthday, I can't remember which, but uh, that it became very apparent to me that these two little boys were never going to sober their father up. You see, I had bought this, a little razor, a little battery-operated razor, and um, uh, electric, right, you know, thing like, and when you push the button, it buzzed. And Robbie looked at it and he said, What is it, Mom? And I said, Honey, it's a razor. You shave with it. And that little fellow raised his pants leg to shave his leg. He didn't know what a man did with a razor. Now, that may not sound like a whole lot to you, but it was like a bolt of lightning. This, was, this boy was not going to sober his father up, so I might as well get rid of the father. And I, I filed suit for divorce the very next day because, you see, all of the things that I thought were the reason he drank, I had fixed them, and it hadn't fixed him. And so I was going to get rid of him. Why, why, you know, why say I only had six children. I better get out while I could still support these kids. So I filed suit for divorce, and, you know, divorce is a magic thing. It works wonders. They promise you they'll quit drinking. And he did. He quit drinking. And so I dropped the divorce. He didn't stay quit. Uh, I filed suit. We had so many file, uh, suits on file down at the lawyer's office. But, you see, it was real easy for me to file these divorce papers because I used to work for the attorney. And if the secretary that he had after I left was busy, I'd type up papers myself. Uh, so filing for divorce was a real easy thing, and it worked. I would scare him sober. It might only scare him for a week or two, but I got him sober for a little while. Again, I had control, and I thought, as long as I had a little bit of control, I was still going to run the show. I was still going to do everything. I went to church every morning of my life. I went to 6 o'clock mass. And I went there to do uh, two things. I went to tell God what to do today and to tell him how he messed up yesterday. <laughs> I never one time said an honest prayer, and not in these years. Uh, his, Bob's brother, his older brother, who was uh, quite a bit older than Bob and was kind of the father image to him, uh, had hit skid row in his drinking and um, he had walked in stumbled into the AA office in downtown Louisville and asked for help and the AAs had taken him out to his mother and father's home and they had sat with him this was back long before they had drying out centers they wouldn't even let someone drunk in a hospital you couldn't get a drunk in a red, into the hospital unless they had a broken leg or something physically that the hospital had to take them for 
And so they sat up, these alcoholics sat up night and day with Norman, and they got him a dry, and they took him day A, and about three weeks after all this was started, you know, I, we were real impressed with these AAs because they sat with him round the clock feeding him orange juice and Cairo syrup and talking to him and uh, walking him and uh, sitting there beside the bed and just, just being with him. And we were, we were, we were all impressed with this. And um, Norman came back to the house one morning and I said, well, you're feeling better. And he said, yeah. And he said, I came back to see if I could borrow a shirt and a tie and a jacket from Bob since I was going out and look for a job. And I nearly fainted. Norman didn't work. He just drank, you know. And I said, you're going to get a job? And he said, yeah, i got to get a job. And uh, I said, sit down and tell me about this thing. And he said, you know, honey, he says, when we used to have the uh, first communion party or something, and somebody would stick a beer in my hand, and they'd say, oh, come on, Norman, learn how to drink like a man. You know, one beer won't hurt you. And he said, and you would always say, it's that first one. Don't drink the first one. And he said, you know, you were right. Well, I don't know how about you all, but for a long time, I hadn't been right in my house. I had been wrong. Everything I'd said and did, everything I tried to accomplish, I had been wrong. And it felt so good having Norm tell me that I had been right about something. And I said, you got to get Bob to this thing. He needs it too. And he said, uh, he says, well, I can't take him. And I said, why not? And he said, it doesn't work that way. And I said, well, just I'll tell him to go with you. And he says, no, it doesn't work that way. He said, the only way I'll ever take Bob to a meeting is if he calls me and asks me to take him. And I thought, hell, he'll freeze over before he does that. And, but I wasn't discouraged because I could see the change in Norman. It was beautiful. I mean, I could watch this man uh, clear-eyed and, and going back to work and, and courting his wife and being a father to his children. And I thought, this is wonderful. And this is what Bob's just got to get. And um, so after a few months of sobriety, well, Bob and Norman were going to go fishing. And uh, I got my idea then. And I said, uh, you're going to go down to Cumberland Lake with, with Norman and uh, drinking? And he said, well, yes, but we don't drink that much. We fish. And uh, I said, uh, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get your brother drunk. And he said, I am not and I said, yes, you are. You're going to go down there and you're going to say something or you're going to do something and you're going to get your brother drunk and won't you be ashamed of yourself? And he said, I'm not going to do anything. He said, I, I'm as proud of Norman being sober as you are. He said, I would never do anything to hurt him. And I said, well, if you're really serious about that, why don't you go to one of those AA meetings with him and find out how to help him stay sober? And he says, well, if it'll help Norman, I'll go. And I said, well, you have to call him and ask him to take you. And he says, okay. <laughs> so it don't matter how you get him here. <laughs> He went to, Norman was real pleased when he called and asked to go, and they went to a meeting that night, and when they went out that door, I can't tell you how elated I was. I just knew that he was as smart as his brother, and when he went to that AA meeting, it was going to get him just like it had gotten Norman, and he was going to come home, and he'd be just like Norman. He'd sober up and straighten up, and everything would be wonderful. He came back through that door in a rage that night. 
He shook his finger in my face and he said, I can't help my brother. He's been sober for eight months. He said, you are never going to take another night out of my life. And he left, went out and got in the car and went off to get drunk. And I just stood there stunned. And I thought, he isn't as smart as his brother. I'm going to have to go and get it for him. And that's what I did. Now, I still had that divorce hanging over his head. So Friday night, I called Norman and I said, we want to go to a meeting with you tonight. And he said, oh, wonderful. I said, I'll be by and pick you up. So he came by and picked us up. I told Bob that Norman was coming, and I don't know, I guess the divorce is why he agreed to go. But we went out to, to the Pleasuridge meeting, and uh, this was a Friday night meeting, and uh, we had to climb up those steps to go in that door. And when they opened, we opened the door, my brother-in-law and Bob and I walk in the room, and uh, I was terrified because I just knew that you women that were in there were terrible women. Because see, if your husbands had gone down as far as Norman had, uh, then, then you know, you had to be really, I expected tight pants and low cut blouses and big hairdos. And when I got in there and I saw these beautiful ladies and these nice dressed men, I thought, wow, this is impressive. And then this gorgeous redhead comes running across the room and she grabs my brother-in-law and she hugs him and kisses him. And I doubled up my fist and I thought, don't you reach for mine, sister. <laughs> now, I didn't want him, but I wasn't going to give him to her. <laughs> and she didn't. She stuck her hand out and she said, you must be Norm's brother, Bob. And I thought, oh my God, Norm's been telling him about us. And <laughs> so... Uh, she shook Bob's hand and then she turned to me and she said you go stay down here with us drunks and I nearly died she was calling herself a drunk and she was calling my husband a drunk and I, you know that's the first breath of honesty I had ever had in my life you know where someone was actually that open and that honest about who they were and what they were and uh, she says are you going upstairs and learn how to live with your drunken husband and I smiled sweetly and I said, oh no, I'm going to stay here with Bob. He needs me. Uh, now I have to clarify that point because you see, uh, for just about 18 months to, prior to this, two years I think it, it actually is, uh, my husband and I hadn't even shook hands in passing. And I can prove that because there's two years and nine months between Mary Rose and Missy. <laughs> Uh, so he had not needed me in those two years uh, we didn't even go to church in the same car uh, my children and I rode in one car and it rode in the other one <laughs> and that's how I felt about it I mean uh, I had I'd stopped thinking of him as even being human you see he had hurt me so badly and my anger was so great at not being able to control him and I sat in that meeting right on the front row and I listened to the speaker and this man that talked had seven children and all it seemed to me this man could say was how wonderful his wife was, how she had stood by him. I could almost hear the battle hymn of the Republic playing in the background <laughs> because all I could envision was if, I, you know, anything that could get Bob up in front of a room full of people to tell them how wonderful I am is what I got to get for him.
And I went at this AA thing with a vengeance. I went back to AA meeting after AA meeting. I loved AA. I sat there and I learned all kinds of things. Uh, and now Bob didn't go with me. I went all by myself. He went back out to enjoy himself, as he said. Um, but uh, there were two old ladies trying to get an Al-Anon meeting started at this one group. And um, I couldn't get away from this one. I mean, she was uh, she was an old lady then, uh, and little gray-headed thing, uh, little you know fragile-looking little thing, but faster than a streak of lightning. Because I avoided this woman. I didn't like her. She she ne- whenever I would try to tell her what he was doing, she'd always say, "And what did you do, dearie?" <laughs> well, I couldn't tell her what I did and stay there. You know, I didn't think they'd even let me stay if they knew what I'd been doing to him. Because, you see, I was the violent one in our home. When this man came home drunk, all he wanted to do was pass out in the bed. But I had been storing up for him all day. I had been rehearsing what I was going to say when he came through that door. And I had my lines all ready. I was going to say this, and when he said that, I was going to get him with a zinger. And when he came in the door, I said my lines, and he never knew his part. He never said the right things. He would pass out. I have poured ice water on this man to wake him up. I have beat his uh, unconscious body, and when he woke up the next morning and said, Oh, God, I'm sore. I'd say, Well, if you just wouldn't drink, you'd know what you did last night. I have done terrible things to this man. If there had been a husband abuse center, my husband would have qualified back in those days because I was the violent one. I was the one who was so caught up in this control thing. He had to see it. He had to see what he was doing. I would scream at him, look what you're doing to me. Look what you're doing to the children. And one night at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, he had just come in, and he was in his suit and his shirt and his tie, and I was in my uniform. I don't know about any other Al-Anons from that far back, but I had a chenille robe that, uh, that just belted, you know. That, that's all they, they did. But I used to take this lapel and pin it over here with a big diaper pin and then bring this skirt over here and pin it with another diaper pin for modesty's sake. And uh, I wore all the chenille off the two hips. It had been blue, and it was this horrible shade of gray, whatever. Uh, I think of some friend called it gunk. Uh, this was my uniform. And, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. I had all these little babies, and I got up in the morning. Now, I did go to Mass, but uh, that was real simple. You just slipped a, a jacket on and took off for church and then come back, and then I put back my uniform because I was going to work that day, and this uniform was really suited for that. But at 4 o'clock that morning, there I stand. My hair hadn't been combed for days. I'm in my uniform. He's in his suit and his shirt and his tie, and I'm screaming at him, you must be crazy. Look what you're doing to us. And he said, you turn around, look in the mirror, and tell me who you think's crazy. (laughs) And that was the last morning I waited up for him. Really. I mean, it took shockers like that to shut me up. Uh, now, I didn't quit telling God what to do. Uh, I was going to these Al-Anon meetings, but you see, Al-Anon was real new in Louisville. There was only four groups in Louisville, and one in Jeffersonville, and one in New Albany. And uh, they didn't know a whole lot about what they were doing either. 
and um, I was listening to them, you know, share around the table, but every one of them had come to Al-Anon after their husbands had found sobriety in AA, and uh, I didn't have anything to identify with them, and they were ladies. They didn't curse, and I cursed like a sailor, because one night I called him an SOB, and he raised me up, and I got a reaction from him. And he said, don't you ever call me that again. He said, that's not cursing me. That's cursing my mother. Well, God knows I wanted to curse her. She'd raised two of them. It had to be her fault. And I found out if I used dirty words, I got his attention. He would tell me to shut up. And I'd do anything to get his attention. So I got this vocabulary going of words that I didn't know what they meant. When I Later, when I found out what some of them meant, I was a little shocked myself. But I just used them because they offended him. I'd do anything he didn't like. Um, but I couldn't identify with these ladies. You know, they were truly ladies. And I was terrified to tell them what I was doing at home and how I was. Just terrified. Because, you see, I loved it here. I loved going to these meetings. It was the only peace that I had in a hectic day. Uh, I took in sewing to get babysitters so that I could get to these meetings because the money was really a problem. We were losing everything. And um, and I kept telling these women that we were, we were going to lose, uh, we were going to lose our home. And they said, it may take that, honey. He may have to hit his bottom before he can see that it's a problem. And I thought, well, let him hit his bottom, but I don't want to go with him. And uh, they kept saying, honey, you just have to let go and let God. And there was this one little old gal around the program. Bless her heart. I was just with her Wednesday night a week ago. And I told her, I said, you know, I still can't stand it when you say, let go and let God. (laughs) How could I do that when things were in the mess they were? My goodness, if I wasn't in there doing something, they'd get worse. I knew. So I really couldn't understand the, any of these ladies. But one night they, they said, you know, if you keep bringing the body back, eventually the mind comes too. And one night I was sitting there, and this lady got uh, was a speaker, and she got up and she talked about the physical abuse in her home. She talked about the anger and the, the, the violent language and the bad things. And all at once I knew that that this was where I could be and this was where I could talk. Now this old lady had been following me around all these meetings and if the room was this big and she was back in that corner, I'd get over here and if she moved that way, I'd move that way. I kept kept her in the corner of my eye. But I tell you when this chairman would hit the podium and say, let's call the meeting to order, that was the fastest little old lady in town. She'd be right beside me and say, sit here dearie. And I didn't want to sit by her because I didn't like this lady. You see, I would tell her what he was doing, and she'd ask those dumb questions. What did you do, honey? And I got to the place where I got so brazen, I'd tell her what I did, thinking maybe I'd shock her off. didn't work. And one night she said, oh, what's that poor boy doing tonight? And I said, that poor boy is out drunk down at the piano bar having a ball. And she says, oh, he is so sick. And I said, sick in the head. And she said, oh, no, honey, you're the one that's sick in the head. So you can see why I gave her a wide berth. You don't stick around people like that. 
Uh, I liked the ones that were patting me on the back and saying, oh, I don't know how you do it. All those little babies, and you make these meetings, and you're so wonderful. And I, those are the ones I like. Boy, I stuck with them. They say stick with the winners. Well, you know, they sounded like winners to me. And this old lady just hung on every meeting. There she'd be. There weren't that many meetings, and she turned up at every one I went to, and uh, I couldn't get away from her. And this was an unmarried old lady, and she'd sit beside me and pat my knee, and I worried. Oh, Lord, I worried about her. (laughs) But... This was our, I'm, st- I'm really going to these meetings though, and I'm learning, and I am learning some things. I'm learning that my children deserve better than what they've got. Now, I would have told you that I was mother and father to these kids, because, my God, when I got to Al-Anon, I was the PTA president, the ultrasodality president, and room mother in two rooms, so that nobody at school would know there was a problem in our house. Our, you know, they, somebody said that you can usually tell when there's a problem in the home when the mother and the father are out of it so much. <laughs> and that was true in our case. Um, I never carried the garbage out until late 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning because I didn't want the neighbors to know I had to do it. Uh, you know, silly little things like that. But um, this uh, same little old lady was still sitting there uh, tagging along with me. And, and trying to talk to me. And one night they had a potluck supper at the Shifley group, or the Pleasuridge group. And um, they had a group, a lady in from Owensboro. And somewhere along this lady's talk, she said that she'd hit her husband in the head with a cast iron skillet. And when he came to in the hospital, he called AA. Well, uh, the next morning I was in Winn-Dixie shopping for a cast iron skillet. And to this day, I've, I keep hoping I'll run into some psychologist or psychiatrist that will tell me why I bought two skillets, one round and one square. But I, that's all I had in my cart when this same beautiful AA lady that had greeted us that first night bumped into me in the store, and she says, Juanita, I've been trying to catch you for five minutes. Where are you going? And I said, oh, I was in a hurry, and I wasn't listening. Did you ever do that? Did the back of your brain going 40 miles a minute, where is he, what's he doing, and who's he doing it with, and how much money is he spending doing it? And the front of you was smiling and talking. Hello there, yeah, you know, and acting normal, whatever that is. Uh, That's the way I was, and she finally got my attention. And then she looked down in the cart, and she looked up at me, and she said, oh, no. And I said, oh, yes, anything. I'm willing to go to any length to get this man sober. And she says, you're going home with me. She says, I don't believe you've gotten anything about this program. And she took me home, put the coffee pot on, and she shared her experiences, her strength, and her hope with me. This beautiful AA lady opened the door to my program of Al-Anon. She told me that alcoholism was a disease, and coming from her, I could believe it. She told me that her husband tried everything to control her, and that if I stayed in Al-Anon like he was, and he was a member of that group I'd been going to, that if I would go to Al-Anon and work on myself and stop trying to control Bob, that I might get a little peace of mind. She's the first one who ever helped me 
accept any part of this program. You see, I thought that UAAs got together and used this disease concept as a cop-out because I thought, disease, nothing, it's self-inflicted if it is because you're the one who pours the booze down your own throat. Nobody holds you down. But not after listening to this beautiful woman. Uh, and, and, and she really she really was a big help in my life. I'm so grateful to her and to her Al-Anon husband because uh, he shared a lot with me that helped me understand the stresses that a man supporting a family lives under. You know, I thought Bob owed me a living. He married me. <laughs> I really felt that way. I didn't know I should be grateful. I didn't know I should offer him some praise and some courtesy. I didn't know that until I started listening in these meetings. And one night I heard somebody say something about, think of your children. They didn't ask to be born into this alcoholism. They're the victims. And I went home and I looked at my kids. And you see, my children were, a, they were to be a reflection of me. And they darn well better mind, and they better be clean, and they better be well-dressed, and they better be just whatever I expected of them in public. And uh, in the same way at home. And many a night I've spanked those kids to bed to keep them there so that I'd have time to worry about Bob. And I'd go in to cover them and to check on them, and I'd see the tears on their cheeks. And I would hate myself for the way I'd been that day. And I didn't know how to change until I started listening in Al-Anon. And you all taught me how to make my children glad I was their mother. And for that, I'm so grateful. The people in that home, that little Al-Anon group loved me when I was unlovable. They loved me unconditionally. They didn't care what I was. They didn't care about the, the language. They didn't care about the carrying on the violence that I did. And you know, today I know why I was, I know there was a reason why I was the way I was. I know there was a reason why I was so violent and so angry and so caught up in it. Because one night after Bob had been sober for a while, we were talking up in a little town called Orleans, Indiana. And a man's wife had died. And he was there at the meeting. And he, he came up to me after Bob and I shared that night. We had talked at a, it was a little supper. And he came up to me and he said, I want to thank you for sharing your story with me about the violence. And I said, why? And he said, because when my wife died, he said she never uh, understood. She never went to uh, AAR Al-Anon with me. And he says, I, I really couldn't understand how she could be so cruel to me, how she could beat me when I was half drunk, how she could kick me when I fell in the door, how she could say all the hateful things that she said to me until you talked. And he says, I don't even go to the graveyard. He says, because I couldn't forgive her for being the way she was to me. And he says, but I want, you, I want to thank you for opening the door and telling me that she was just as sick as I was and she was in pain and I'll go to the graveyard tomorrow and tell her that I love her. So I know that was the reason, I guess, if there was no other reason why I had to be the way I was. I'm not proud of the way I was. 
You see, going to Al-Anon meetings, I was still doing these things at home. I could be a good Al-Anon at the meeting, but I couldn't bring it into my home when he was drunk. Uh, one night, we played games. We played hide-and-go-seek with a billfold. We played king on the hill with the car keys. And one night, we were playing king on the hill with the car keys. And, of course, I was pregnant. I was always pregnant. And um, he... I had ripped his shirt off of him, and I'd clawed his face, and uh, he got the keys by pushing me down. And when I hit that floor, instead of uh, worry or concern about the baby or or, uh, feeling anything, the only thing I felt was euphoric because I looked up at him and I, I I said, look at you. You have sunk as low as a man can sink. You've struck a lady. And he looked around the living room and he said, I don't see any ladies. <laughs> the anger and the rage that came up in me, and I had been going to Al-Anon meetings for 18 months when this happened, but I wanted him dead. I wanted the pain out of my life. And the only thing I could reach was the fireplace equipment and there was a poker there. And I grabbed that poker and I swung that poker at that man's head. I meant to kill him. He threw his arm up and I broke his arm. And then he says, take me to the hospital. And I handed him the keys that I had been fighting for because he was too drunk to drive. But I handed them to him and I said, drive yourself. I don't care if you die. And I meant to die, damn you because I was that sick and that tired of trying to control a problem that I couldn't control, trying to control another person's life. That's how sick and resentful and bitter I had gotten. It was shortly after this that I filed suit for divorce, and this time I meant it. This time I wasn't trying to scare him sober. This time I made the decision without anger. And, you know, they say that you can say what you mean, but don't say it mean. And that's what I did when I said to him, this time I mean it, I want a divorce. I have to remove you from this situation. Because you see, we lost our home. We lost everything we owned. We had to move in with my mother. My mother hated my husband. She never wanted me to marry him. She never let me forget what a mistake I had made. And yet we were all living in the same house. And it was really, you know, they say that we make our own hell, and and that was a a real one. You see, when we moved in with my mother, my mother, that's why I know alcoholism is a a family disease, because my mother got as sick as I was real quick. And then it got real easy to let go and let God, because now I could let go and let mother. She did all the crazy things I had done before, and she did them better than I did. She would go down to the bar and drag him out, and she would go get his checks and cash him, and she took care of everything, and I let her because I was tired. I was really tired of fighting the battle. I just wanted some peace and some quiet, and I wanted to be out of this mess. Um, When they served Bob with the divorce papers, he took off on a fishing trip. He packed up and said he was going fishing. And uh, I really thought that he was going to go for good. I didn't think I'd see him anymore. But uh, three weeks later, it was a warm November night in 1962, uh, or that morning, he came back and he found out my mother had been real busy while he was gone. She had all the locks changed on the doors and she had a restraining warrant taken out so that he couldn't step on her property, and it was her house. And um, 
or she had spent the whole three weeks preaching to me, you are not taking him back. You are not, and you know, what I was going to do. She was giving me the, the, the rules and regulations. And I had to listen because my mother was totally supporting me in these uh, seven children, and I was pregnant with an eighth one. And so uh, when he came back that night, about 7.30, uh, he broke the door down to the house. And uh, my mother said, uh, ordered him off, and she said, if you don't leave, I'm calling the police. And he told her that that was a fine thing to do, have her son-in-law arrested. And she told him, you know, he said, who's going to take care of these children? And she let him know who'd been taking care of them, and she called the police. And so I went on upstairs to get dressed because it was my regular Friday night Al-Anon group and I was going to go to my meeting. It was, this was not my problem. I was detaching. Now Bob called this rejection. Uh, but it was not my problem. It was between my mother and, my, and Bob. It was not mine. And so I'm dressing when I heard our oldest daughter screaming and yelling and calling her baby brothers and sisters. And I come out of our bedroom and I said, Cindy, what in the world? And she said, Mom, Daddy's got a gun. He says he's going to kill us. And I said, Honey, your Daddy's not going to kill anybody. And she said, Yes, he is. He's right up there in the attic, and he's got a big gun. And I opened that attic door, and there my husband sat at the top of that stairway with a 12-gauge Browning automatic shotgun pointed right straight down at me. And I said, What are you doing? And he said, Honey, your mother's called the police. She wants them to take me away, and I can't live without you and the kids. And you know, I knew he was not lying to me. I knew he really and truly meant what he said. I knew that alcoholism, when he drank the alcohol, it got in the way. I closed the door very gently and went downstairs, and when I got downstairs to the bottom landing in our hallway, my mother was coming out of her room with her 410 shotgun. And I said, what are you going to do? And she says, I'm going upstairs and get rid of the problem. And you just would have had to have known my mom. <laughs> she was a very opinionated, domineering, dominating type person. And, you know, for just a moment, I thought, if I let her go, maybe they'll shoot each other and the kids and I can live in peace. <laughs> this is how sick I had gotten. I did stop her. And uh, while she and I were wrestling over her gun, the police that she had called came to the door and they called out the riot squad because there was a nut in the attic and there was two women fighting over a gun and nobody would give up any guns and they weren't coming in. Now this is back before the SWAT team, so we were just completely surrounded by police cars. We live on this big old hill right near Iroquois Park and there's a driveway on two sides of our house and a street on two sides. So we were totally surrounded by police cars with their floodlights on the house. Their, those red lights were going around and around and around. And they had their radios on real loud saying riot on Iroquois Parkway. And I looked out the door and my first conscious thought after almost two years in Al-Anon was what must the neighbors think? <laughs> I, I leaned out the door and I said, can I call AA? And this policeman with a tear gas gun in his hand leaned out from behind one of the big trees and he said, hell lady, I don't care who you call. <laughs> so I called AA that night and when I called over at the church where I was usually going, 
the pastor's study was always locked up. But that night, the ladies of the church sewing circle was going to meet in the Al-Anon room, and they had unlocked the pastor's office and allowed the Al-Anons to meet in that room. Uh, coincidence? I don't think so. I think this was God working miracles in our lives because they answered the phone and Bob's brother and a priest that Bob had gone to school and played ball with and two AA members came to our house that night. Uh, the priest went out and talked the police into leaving. Bob went up, uh, Bob's brother went upstairs in the attic and got Bob to give up his gun. It took both AA members to get my mother to give up her gun. Uh, they... They took. They finally gave her one of her sleeping pills, and I used to say they gave her a sleeping pill and tucked her in until somebody reminded me that AAs do not dole out medicine. Uh, but they gave her one of her sleeping pills and put her to bed and tucked her in. And then they told me that they were taking Bob to Our Lady of Peace Hospital, which is a, a hospital that uh, at that time had an alcoholic lockup ward, but they didn't have an, a program. Uh, they just had a, a ward. And uh, so uh, I sat there with the phone in my lap, just like I had made that call at whatever time it was that I made it. And when they went out the door, Bob leaned back in the door and says, Bye, honey, see you in a minute. And I thought, oh, God, I hope not. Because, you see, I was, I was to the bottom. I, there, was nothing, there was nothing left of me, nothing left to fight with. It was dark. The house was quiet. I got up. I went upstairs to our room, and I stood looking out that window. And I despaired. If there was a God in heaven, he didn't love me. And if this program had any basis, there was nothing in it for me because it hadn't worked. I had tried, and I would tried hard. And I stood there in that dark, and I could hear this old lady's voice as if she was standing right in the room with me saying, if you're not as close to God as you want to be, you're the one that moved away. Reach out. He's waiting for you. And I reached out in the darkness of that room, and I said the first prayer I had ever said in my life. I said, God, please help me. There was no conditions on it, no bargaining. And I felt like somebody had poured warm molasses over me. I felt so good. And I walked over and laid down on the bed. I didn't even turn back the bedspread. I just laid across the bed and went sound asleep. Um, I believe in that moment that I took the first three steps of my program. I believed that I accepted alcoholism as a disease. And I believe I accepted the fact that my life was unmanageable and that I knew the things I had done were not exactly sane. But I believed that a God could return me to sanity. And I made that decision to let him do it. And the Alateens have a beautiful way of saying, you know, the first three steps are, uh, I can't, God can, I believe I'll let him. And uh, so I think it works beautifully for us Al-Anons too. Uh, when the alarm clock went off that morning, I was absolutely in panic because, you see, Cindy was nine and a half years old, and there were six baby brothers and sisters younger than her. The baby was 18 months old, and I did not know what had happened to them after I had told them their daddy wasn't going to kill them. And I went running back in their bedrooms, and there was no children in the bedrooms. And when I 
come back down the hallway, it's a big old house with huge rooms and a big walk-in closet. And uh, in fact, uh, Buddy and uh, Arlene stayed in the room where Cindy's closet was. And I saw that closet door was shut and I ran over there and tried the knob and it was locked. And I said, Cindy, and that little voice says, Mama, is everything all right? Those seven babies had spent the night in total terror that somebody might kill them. And because Bob and I have stayed close to this program of AA and Al-Anon through these years, they have never had another night like that in their life. And for that, I'm grateful. You would think that when Bob got out of that hospital, uh, that he would have everything would have been wonderful, but uh, he went over to the bar that day that he got out of the hospital. He refused all help, and I was determined to go through with the divorce. And um, when I heard he was in the bar, I knew there was no hope. This man had told me that morning that he would rather be dead than face a life without drinking. Because we lived in a social community that it was part and parcel of everything everybody did. You know, you went to a ball game, everybody had a beer. Uh, you went to the Holy Name Society, everybody drank beer when the meeting was over. It was part of our lives. And I was asking him to do something unnatural, and he couldn't accept it. And I knew that that day that, that it was over, that I would never, I probably would never see him alive again. I'd probably maybe be lucky if I heard he died dead under, or died under some bridge. But that at night at 4.30, it was our second oldest daughter's birthday, and I looked up, and there he stood at the back door, and I thought, oh, my God, I looked at the clock, in 20 minutes my mother would be home, and it would all start over again, and I was panic-stricken. Uh, and he told me through the door, he says, I've been talking to your mother, and she said if it's okay with you, I can stay for Pam's birthday. And I said, you've been talking to my mother? You know, they hated each other. They never talked. They screamed. They shouted. They fought, but they never talked. And uh, I opened the door, and the kids saw him, and they, Pam was so delighted that Daddy was there for her birthday. Pam's our daddy's girl. Uh, years later, I was to find out it, when she was in Alateen that, um, that she hated me. She hated me terribly because she thought I was the reason that Daddy wasn't there for her, that if I would just keep my big mouth shut, Daddy wouldn't drink. She believed that for a long time. Thank God for Alateen because it taught her that we were both sick and that that wasn't true, that it wasn't my mouth that kept him from being sober. Um, the oldest daughter hated me for, for the entirely different reason. She hated me for making her live in the situation the way we lived. She hated me because I, I stayed with him and made him live like that. Uh, thank God Alateen was there for her and helped her understand that Bob and I are sick human beings, just learning, just working on a new way of life. And he did come, he did stay for the birthday, and I was supposed to go over and share at a meeting uh, on uh, Ashland Avenue that night. And my first thought was, oh no, I can't leave them together here alone. I'll have to stay here and watch them. And then I thought, wait a minute, I, I've admitted that I'm powerless and I'm supposed to be working on me, and I've made a commitment to be someplace else tonight, and I'm going, and I went, and left my mother and my husband sitting there across the table from each other. 
And when I came home that night, I didn't know what I'd find. I really didn't, but I had turned it completely over to a power that now I could believe loved me because he'd given me that peace a few nights before. Uh, they were still sitting there talking. And when I got there, I got a cup of coffee and I sat down and my mother says, it wants to stay. <laughs> and I didn't move a muscle. And she says, but let me tell you this, if it stays and it takes one drink, you and I all seven kids hit the street. I will not do one thing to help you. And I don't know about anybody else, but security and food on the table for these children was a tremendous fear that enveloped me. But I also had taken some steps in a program of recovery that told me that I'd have to put my faith where my fear was. And Bob looked across the table and he said, Honey, I can't promise you anything. Now, this man had promised me the sun, moon, and stars. If you'll call my boss and tell him I'm sick, I won't ever drink again. Uh, you know, if you do this for me, I won't ever drink again. He had promised me all these things and never kept them. But he was, t he was talking the way AA talked. He said, I can't make you any promises, but I don't want to go back to the hell we've been living in, and I'm willing to give AA a try. And I said, that's all I can ask. And I'm grateful that I had the courage to say that because this November the 8th, my husband will celebrate 25 years of continued sobriety. And I think that deserves an applause, please. <laughs> I jokingly tell people I've been married 36 and a half years and he's been married 25, but... Uh, <laughs> They, have been, they weren't all glorious years. When he got sober in AA, you know, we, be, oh, we became such hard workers. Oh, we were the best AA announcements you ever saw. We went to meetings. We, our Alateens went to Alateens, and we went to our programs, and we went to conferences, and we just did all kinds of wonderful things. But we weren't able to work it at home. We were miserable at home. You see, we still fought over money because I controlled the money when he drank. And now he was sober and he wanted to control it. <laughs> I mean, you know, how dare he? After all I had done and he wanted to take back over the finances, uh, he wanted to discipline these children. And you see, I had become aware how much pain I had caused these children through my actions, not his. And I was not going to let anybody else hurt these children so I wouldn't let him discipline them. Uh, they were my children, and I'm the one that had hurt them, so I was going to be the one to protect them. And I stood between my husband and these children for quite a few years, about five years in this program. I allowed him to love the children through me, and I allowed them to love him through me. And the best way I can explain that is that Cindy came to me and, and said, Mom, I'm going to a dance, and I, I would love to have a new dress. And I said, oh, honey, well, I don't know if we've got the money. And she says, well, will you ask Daddy? And I said, yes. And so I go to Bob. Bob, can Cindy have a new dress for the dance? Well, does she need it? And I said, well, yes, I think she does. And then finally he reluctantly agreed, and he gave me the money. And I went back to her, and I said, Daddy said you could have the new dress. And she said, oh, tell Daddy thank you. Now that's how we lived.
it's not a very good way to live. It causes a lot of pain. And one day, the pain got so great that uh, I was no longer able to stay between Bob and these children. And because Cindy was the oldest and because Cindy's resentments towards her dad were the greatest, uh, they got into a confrontation. And I was physically unable because I had had surgery, and I couldn't get up and get in between them and fix it for them. And they said things to each other, like Cindy said, you'll never walk me down the aisle. I don't love you. And this is after her going to Alateen that they had this confrontation. But don't you see, it's because I was standing in the way. So because I couldn't get in the way and fix it, they fought it out toe to toe. And before that battle was over, they were in tears and they were in each other's arms. And they were saying, I'm sorry, I love you. And you know, I felt the warmth of their love for one another. I'm the one that reaped the benefits. And I'm the one who had been standing in the way. I didn't deserve that. There's so many good things that have come my way in this program that I didn't deserve. But thank God, because I kept coming back, God just kept showering them down on me. Most of them, every experience that I've learned from, every painful experience has been because I turned my back on this program and tried it my way. And when I hurt badly enough to look back and try it the Al-Anon way, I was able to grow. And you know, I don't ever have to experience that pain again unless I choose to. And that's, that's one of the nicest things about my program. If I learn a lesson well, I don't ever have to experience that pain again. I'd love to tell you that we just lived happily ever after, but you see, we got we got so good at this uh, quarreling about money at home and then going to a meeting, and we'd open the car door and we'd turn on, and I'd be the best Alan on you ever saw, and I'd give you all kinds of advice about how to solve your problems, and Bob would be the best AA you ever saw, and people would say, oh, aren't they a wonderful couple? And uh, then we'd get back in the car and pick that quarrel up right where we'd left off. This was not living the program. This was not living it in all of our affairs. And it came to a place where we were talking divorce just as much as we'd ever talked it before, only this time we were talking it very cold and matter-of-fact. Because, you see, I was looking at him and saying, if he was working his AA program, he wouldn't be treating me this way. And he was looking right back at me and saying, if you were working your Al-Anon program, you wouldn't be acting this way. And we came to a place where we realized that we were taking each other's inventory. And, you know, I came to a place where I realized that I loved this man just as he was. I didn't like him. I didn't like a lot of things about him, but I loved him just as he was, and I was able to tell him that. And we were able to start over again in our programs together. We started doing things a little differently. You see, Bob would take a couple of new guys to an AA meeting, and I'd take a couple of new girls to Al-Anon, and maybe we'd cross paths, and maybe we'd hit the same meeting, and maybe not. We were going in different directions all the time, thinking we were working our program. And we started working together. We started working with other couples. We started enjoying life with other couples in the program. 
and we started sharing problems with other couples and getting some feedback from them and we were we were able to watch the winners the couples who really loved one another and they taught us to love each other because of the way they loved one another uh, little things like you know a, a wife not putting her husband down I thought it was clever to put Bob down you know because I was so good at a put down and uh, but I would watch this other lady and she never put her husband down in fact she would say ridiculous things about him that I knew weren't true you know he wasn't all that great and he sure wasn't handsome like she said but you know in her eyes he was and you know I started looking at Bob and I could see how great he was and how smart he was and how clever he was and I started thanking him for being the provider and the wonderful man he was I started treating him with courtesy and kindness instead of the way I usually treated him uh, I still say if I was too kind the shock would kill him but uh, we did grow in our programs and we've had a lot of beautiful years our nine children have grown up. Our baby is 23 now. She'll be married next June. She and her uh, husband-to-be will both get their master's degree in May, and then they will get married in June. And um, well, all of our children but one is married, and our second oldest daughter is a career woman, very successful. And Alatine is the reason these children were all able to level their lives out the oldest one who was a perfectionist has learned to accept her limitations and yet be grateful for her talents, which are many. Um, the the second oldest one that hated me and was so withdrawn is the, an accomplished and beautiful young businesswoman that deals every day with, I mean, she's one of the uh, owners of one of the biggest insurance agencies in Kentucky. And she's uh, very, very influential and very much admired, admired and respected. These children have all grown up in Alateen, and for that, we, Bob and I, don't have a lot to do with it, uh, except that we were there and we made it possible. You know, we all got sick together. Isn't it wonderful? We can all get sober together and live this life together, and we really have. We were last February. Uh, we were down in uh, Alabama at, an, uh, at um, the Bessemer Group's anniversary, and there was eight of us there. We'd all come from Louisville just for that anniversary. And that morning the phone rang, and my youngest daughter called and t told us that we'd had twin grandchildren last October the 18th, and she had called me in February the 7th of this year, and she said, Mom, Whitney died. They found her dead in bed this morning. And we had a six-and-a-half-hour trip to make home to be with this child that had lost this baby. And I'm ashamed to tell you that for about the first four hours of that trip, I sat there in anger, demanding God tell me why. God give me a reason. God, tell, show me why. What was the purpose in taking this little baby that was so loved and so wanted? And somewhere, this same beautiful old lady that has been my sponsor, she has never had a kind word to say to me, <laughs> never had a bad word to say about Bob, 
But I could hear her voice saying, it is not for us to question God's will. We just have to pray for the power to carry it out. And I kept praying that 11th step over and over and over again until we were able to get home and see this daughter through this. But you know, when we had that funeral, we didn't we didn't do a lot of of it wasn't sad. We celebrated Whitney's life. She'd only been with us three and a half months, but we celebrated her life, the joy that she, that we'd known with her. And that's what this program has taught us. There are no endings. They're just new beginnings. And the same daughter, who was the mother of these twins, had been blinded in her left eye about a year before the babies were born. And uh, 30 days from Whitney's funeral, the doctor called and said, we have a cornea, and we think we can do a cornea transplant. Bring your daughter in. And we took her in the next morning for surgery. And when he came out of the operating room, he said, Mom, your daughter is going to see. Her eyesight is going to be okay. It's going to be restored. I just know it. And I said, oh, this is part of the promises that this program makes us, that God never takes anything away, that he doesn't give you something better in return. And this was just an affirmation of that knowledge. On June the 29th, I lost my... I'm sorry. On June the 29th, I lost my sponsor. This, this lady was my... I never missed a day calling her. She told me to. You didn't do anything she didn't tell you to. <laughs> I've often heard people say, what happens if you don't do what your sponsor says? I don't know. For 27 years, I was afraid not to do what she told me. <laughs> but on June the 29th, she died. A beautiful death. She was an 85 years old, still active in Al-Anon. And to... 24 hours before she died, a new little girl came in to sit with me because we took turns sitting with her. And she still had that finger going, telling that little girl, <laughs> this program works if you work it. And there were about 12 of us holding her hand. We were all around her. Bob was on one side and I was on the other. And we said the Lord's Prayer because the nurses and doctors had said it was getting close. And she was breathing very slowly. And just as we said, Amen, she took her last breath. And we kept waiting for the next one, and it didn't come. I have been looking since June the 29th for a new sponsor because I believe with all my heart this program will not work for you if you don't have a sponsor in a home group. I'm, I guess I'm like my husband. I'm looking for a perfect sponsor just like I had. But I know with a certainty that if I keep coming and I keep asking God to help me, that he'll bring the person that I'm supposed to ask to be my sponsor. 
if I haven't said anything to tell you that this program does work and I, I hate to leave with tears because we have had so much fun and so much joy in this program it has been a beautiful way of life for us we're going to leave here and we're going to fulfill a dream we've had for 37 years we've got a motor home out there and we're going to tour the New England states and watch the fall foliage we've prayed for that we've talked about it for all these years and we're going to realize that dream because of people like you because you loved me when I was unlovable and you helped me love my husband when he was unlovable you helped you told me that I could never hurt him into loving me I would have to show him love so he could return it and you did that by showing me your love really and truly if I haven't said anything to help you keep coming back this program does work if you work it you can't sit on the chair one night a week at a meeting and expect it to get you you have to do something the steps are all action steps please I want to thank the committee for inviting me I want to thank you for the fruit Bob and I have almost gobbled it all up but mostly I want to thank you for just being here for me being here and loving me and you know Claire said before when we reading supper tonight that she says to herself that I am worthy of being well I'm worthy of being healthy and you know you've we've got to think that way God doesn't make junk we're each and every one of us real special people and I thank you so much for having me